Hello and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and we're talking about the future of housing and I'm joined by Sophie White who's Director of Infrastructure Grant from Homes England and Sarah Horden who's co-founder and Chief Commercial Officer at Modulus. Sophie, welcome. Let's start with you. Homes England has, has been playing an incredibly and increasingly prominent role in the housing world over the last years. It, 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 you know, it's now everywhere. From your role in, in infrastructure, what's on your plate? What, what are you doing day to day? Are you just, you know, you walking around handing out bags of cash like Sansa? What, what's, uh, what's keeping you busy? Hi, Andrew. Good to see you. So uh, as my role of Director of Infrastructure Grant, we're basically providing grant funds to local authority partners to fund the really important infrastructure to bring more housing forwards and really making bringing for those land and opportunities forwards um, to ensure we can start increasing placemaking, quality of place and bringing housing delivery. So it's all about acceleration, acceleration, acceleration. It's, it's all about acceleration, but actually particularly on the grant fund, it, it's about making impossible happen. So uh, the importance of grant, and we haven't had lots in the past, but the importance of grant is that it really does change the dial or move the dial in terms of uh, providing the capital, that kind of really high risk uh, fr- first loss capital to make those projects that seem completely impossible, a, a bit of a glint in someone's eye, I guess, uh, become deliverable and become a really material opportunity. Mm, excellent. Well, look, we'll come back to that in a minute. Sarah, let, let's come to you. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing at Modulus. Cause you come from uh, a, a, quite a, a, a cool blended background of everything from horsing and housing. Um, but you, you've ended up as co-founder of a really exciting and impressive tech-driven business that's looking to really enable a huge amount of change across housing construction. Yeah, hi, Andrew. Yeah, we've got a really wide team at Modulus, which is allowing us to do something very different. So we're looking to enable the delivery of housing through a combination of a digital platform. So that's everything from digital design through to procurement and quality control and project management. So an end-to-end development platform that ties in with my development background. And then we also have a a physical technology, which is a net zero carbon kit of parts, which is the first step of actually delivering homes using that digital platform. So the two basically plug together hand in glove. Absolutely. Well, look, let's let's crack straight on to the the conversation. I mean, and and, I I think, Sophie, let's pick up where we just started on the grant piece because i think that's clearly been one of the huge challenges to well to everyone in the housing association community who've who've seen their grant continue to dwindle over the years what should the role be for grant giving to what degree does that drive innovation and change versus i I guess get in the way of it so i think first of all it's really important to say that the infrastructure grant is very different to the affordable housing grant so uh, it is enabling and unlocking land rather than necessarily delivering um, the homes themselves. But what Grant does is it, it, it gets us over the line, doesn't it? If there's, you know, challenges about viability, obviously affordable housing provision is difficult. It costs money. And so it's about meeting that gap. And it's completely the same with the infrastructure grant in that sometimes there are just schemes that need a gap. So we've got a cracking scheme in Manchester at the moment uh, where we've provided £10 million of, of grant into that scheme. And what that has done that's closed that gap a, a, across revenues and costs, it's meant that they've been able to, developers have been able to deliver 540 homes. That's also provided an opportunity for a pension company, which has brought that build to rent scheme in. So actually for a relatively small amount. What scheme is it? 
it's uh, Manchester, Victoria. Yeah. And so for a relatively small amount of investment, what we were able to take is a brownfield scheme or brownfield piece of land that wasn't deliverable and make it into a viable and investable product, which has delivered housing, it's delivered jobs, it's delivered economic benefit and placemaking just through that delivery. And also what we also have is that on the bigger end of the scheme, so the forward funding element of Housing Infrastructure Fund, what we can do is grant fund big bits of infrastructure, so roads, utilities, We've got a scheme in Cambridge, the so Cambridge North, which is currently a wastewater treatment works. It's, you know, been a long way north of the city centre originally when it was planned and designed, been there a long time. But actually, as the city has grown and morphed, that spot has become quite prime land, but with a wastewater treatment works sitting on it. So what the um, council have done for a long time is look at this opportunity and thought, wouldn't it be great if we could move that? But it needed over two hundred million pounds to be able to do that. Yeah, so through a lot our grant, of dirty funds, soil there, I guess. Through our grant funds, what we've been able to do is provide that capital certainty to be able to go through the design, work out if it does work, and then also give um, money forwards to make that happen. The interesting thing about that site, there's a lot of tomato plants. Really. Because what nitrogen in the soil, I guess, being quite good for the or just tomatoes. waste products, seeds, maybe natural fertilisation. There are many things that I can blag my way around on farming isn't one of them but never say never but 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 it's interesting though because this this sense of enabling as you say the impossible is 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 quite key sarah from your perspective you see you see a huge amount of opportunity to enable through digital technology and through uh, i guess attacking some of these inherent and and pre-existing well, just pre-existing market failures, let's call it for what it is, market failures in, in construction, pricing, logistics, procurement, every single aspect of the whole chain has got something wrong with it. Yeah, I think it's a disconnected chain with expertise sitting in different organisations with you know, the dynamics and the market forces don't encourage that expertise to come together and work together. And so what we're doing is bringing that expertise together under one roof and then digitising it and then that digital platform that we've developed. So whether it is designing, costing, programming a building in an automated way, so enabling architects to take our design tool and our chassis and create amazing buildings, so buildings that really speak to the local vernacular and work for people. And why would an architect want to use your platform? Surely they're going to see that as eating their lunch. So what the platform provides is the chassis. So the kit of parts and the digital platform allows you to upload a site and it will then do an initial scale and massing study, an initial viability study because it's got the cost built into it and it's got the program built into it so it can give you an ROI. So the architect can then take that initial scale and massing study, which might take them months to develop, and actually do the creative bit. So they've got a baseline to work from but from a client's perspective, so with my development hat on, I know that actually the building that the architect is developing for me is viable and I've got a chance to build it. So viable both from a financial perspective, but also from a physical perspective. So it potentially enables the architects to actually be more efficient. More efficient, but also doing the work that they really bring their expertise to so it's about creativity it's about what's the articulation of the building how does the facade work how do we make sure that the the operational brief from the housing association or from the from the end user is correct and they're working with that what they're not doing is repeat designing thousands of flats we're using their skills and actually the structural skills the m e skills 
to do the bits that are creative, not the repetitive bits. Mm. And from a client perspective then, so if I'm a housing association or a regional house builder or somebody that wants to, to do something, um, what, what would your platform enable me to do that I wouldn't be able to do before? So it ties the whole thing together. So it allows you to do an initial feasibility study on a plot of land um, to then procure a partner architect to come and work with you to then take that building through planning. So we know that planning will always require people involvement. We need to engage with the local community. We need to engage with the planners. That needs your, your local architect to do it. But the end product is a Revit model and an LOD 400 design. So when you've got that design through planning, you're ready to hit go on the platform to procure. Mm. So you might be looking for a contracting partner who will deliver that building on site using that modulus kit of parts. And then that platform will also allow you to procure the kit of parts from the supply chain. So our partners today, Canav, Semex, who are delivering those that kit just in time, just in sequence, through a logistics partner to a local assembler close to site. So as a local authority or a housing association, you're enabling a local contractor to deliver a high quality, high designed kit of parts using a local assembly facility. Mm. So it, you're not shipping boxes of air around the country, you're tapping into a supply chain and then there's a whole piece around project management, contract management, quality control, so that actually the end building that you get, you've got materials passports on it, you've got quality control, uh, and it's also net zero carbon. Yeah, and, and that's the key thing, isn't it, Sophie, in terms of the whole sustainability agenda, the climate crisis that, that we're obviously all facing into right now, this need for housing... To, for the whole housing market to tackle embodied carbon is a big thing because lots lots of people are banging on about net zero, but what they really mean is they've changed a few light bulbs, they've called it net zero and, and they, they've washed their hands of it. It's actually a lot of the construction waste, the embodied carbon of all of these parts that are creating a lot of emissions. What is the agency looking at from a sustainability perspective? How are you trying to feed in and, and own this challenge? I think it's a really good question and you know I've been up at housing conference in Manchester for the last couple of days and it feels like that that dialogue and that conversation is definitely starting to happen uh, certainly from a sustainability perspective from Homes England you know we historically have perhaps been you know quite focused on numbers and actually getting you know really challenging the housing crisis in terms of numbers and capacity and that is really important but as evidence and education is growing it's fascinating sort of just how much embedded carbon within that housing production that there is and what an important part that the housing industry as a whole has to play with that I wouldn't say that we are you know definitely at the leading edge of that at the moment but what I think Homes England does have is it's a great platform. So as a housing enabler and kind of government's voice into this space, what we really try to do is to make sure that we've got, you know, the opportunity to stand on our platforms and encourage our partners to work with us to try and change and think about the space that we can move into and, you know, really start to tackle that problem. And, and Sarah, in terms of, of tackling that issue, particularly around things like construction waste, and you, you talked a bit before about how bringing different disciplines together can aid certainty, right? In terms of cost, in terms of understanding the local planning rules. What is the opportunity here to change the dial on, on sustainability? So I think, I think first of all, I, w I wouldn't, you know, net, delivering net zero is 
in operational use is not something that's a given. So I think actually the ability to do that through good quality design, fabric first approach is really important. Design, Take, just, just explain what you mean by fabric first approach. Sounds like a washing machine ad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe not quite. Um, so fabric first. Effects. Bold or daz, what are we going for? <laughs> So what we're going for is is a building that actually it effectively going back to real old school principles. If you think about a big stone barn, it, it's cool in summer and it's warm in winter. It's the most sustainable building ever built, right? Because it's probably still here. That's the point around embodied carbon as well, isn't it? Yeah. But but as a net zero approach, it's around that building which is cool in summer, warm in winter. So actually it's because of the materials it's built out of. So when we've been designing a technology around a kit of parts, we're looking at using materials that have those inherent properties. So actually using mineral wool insulation, stuff that's healthy for people as well as for the planet. So it's not polyurethane. It's it's a healthy insulation, but it is allowing that home to stay cool in summer and warm in winter, therefore needing less heating or cooling mm. so you're you're driving the the use of electricity down because of the performance of the actual building it's a good point because a lot of well not a lot of but certainly some people's views in this area i'm not going to name any companies but i'm not not even necessarily talking about housing businesses but some people's views are well as long as we use green energy it's fine we don't really care about the use that is the view of some some businesses but you're Ultimately, anyone with common sense would agree with you and say, look, we've got this crisis on our hands. We should reduce the energy we're using and then think about how we supply what we do need from a sustainable source. So I think they're both valid arguments. But I think actually if you're the end homeowner or home occupier, actually it's pretty important to you what your electricity bill looks like each year. And if we can take it to net zero and you've got a bill which is pretty much zero as opposed to £1,000 a year for a one-bedroom house... That has a major impact, particularly for those who've got in fuel poverty. So there's a big social piece around this as well as an environmental piece. Mm. But uh, and the other point you mentioned in terms of healthy materials, how does that need to play out? Because a lot of these things that, that could be classified as non-healthy aren't banned by the planning or building regs, are they? No, they're not. And it's, uh, I think it's something that in the same way that net zero and the environment has come over the horizon, I think we can see this coming over the horizon as people are becoming much more aware of the impact of the home on health. And I think lockdown um, has probably had a huge impact on that. So do you think there could be a tobacco moment for, for healthy materials, for solvents, for glues, for paints, for all of the sort of stuff that, that we have inside buildings that perhaps isn't great for you i think we'll become increasingly aware of what the environment around us is doing to our health Um, and in terms of actually being able to articulate that you see that so there's the red list in the u.s materials that they consider shouldn't be in the home yeah it's a really interesting point for for government to think about partel 2025 we've talked a lot about the environmental performance of that but actually thinking about the health for the individual um in that Partel 2025. Mm. I mean, yeah, the, so building regs, that part has typically just been focused on energy, hasn't it? It has. And I think that that mantra about healthy for planet, but also healthy for people is something that I think we'll see increasingly coming to the fore. Certainly. I mean, I, I mean, Sophie, I don't know what, what's your view on that. I mean, I, I my view is that I, I think Sarah's totally correct. And certainly as 
as consumers are more informed both by, not just by Google, but by sensors and mobile devices and all sorts of paraphernalia that one now has that could measure everything, right? From humidity to your heartbeat, to your pet's heartbeat, to your kid's heartbeat, everyone, everyone's steps, all of these sorts of things. And you could probably quite, quite, you know, we've got, what have we got in here? We don't have, we don't have any air filters in this room, but you can certainly get all sorts of air filtering devices that will tell you whether the paint you've just used to paint your kid's room is going to poison anyone or not. Hopefully that will never happen to anybody. But I, but ultimately, the the question that the, the point that Sarah makes is a good one though in terms of what should the role be of of government of regulators here because a lot of these things aren't really even on the table at the minute, are they? So I think I don't think there's a human out there that doesn't think that this is the right way forwards. And again, it's about learning and growth. You know, the days of the baby chewing the lead paint on the side of its cot. it's just about knowledge isn't it and about education I sound possibly like I'm dodging the question of course it's important for government to think about processes and practices and actually I think as that agenda and that discussion Mm. and that kind of understanding and other options as well grows and builds and I think in part from Homes England's perspective you know having the platform and to invite activity within the market to be able to showcase people to be able to have that you know being able to bring together market intelligence and market knowledge is a really really beneficial thing that because as much as we're government's housing enabler out we're also government's housing information in to a certain extent and so how we use that in a two-way channel rather than just one way I think yeah no, it's, it's, it's a good point and, and obviously you're not here to set or make building regs or, or, or comment on policy on that so they absolutely appreciate that on your point how should people be engaging with the agency? So where you might have some, there might be, let's face it, there's going to be some geek listening to this that knows everything there is to know about paints and solvents and correct me on all the wrong things I probably said. But how should those people get in touch with Homes England? How should should experts and people that, that maybe come from different disciplines, which is, to Sarah's point, the principal underlining of, of what her business is trying to do, how, how should the industry as a whole be engaging with, with different experts that do come from different backgrounds? So I think certainly from a Homes England perspective, we have a website, there is connect, you know, there's contact information on there. We are also going through our own process of kind of becoming a more digital agency, really thinking and challenging ourselves about what our accessibility is like, how people can access through. And I know, Sarah, from chatting earlier, there's a bit of nodding that goes along when I can say, actually, sometimes the agency can be a little bit opaque. And so we're really trying to to sort of push that forwards and build on that agenda. Part of our sort of operational model is about diversification. And so I think that is something that's really interesting. And listening to Sarah this morning, you know, bringing different minds into what has been a relatively static business model, that gives us great opportunities, doesn't it, for the future? And we were talking earlier, weren't we, about, you know, the next generation and gaming and all Mm. kinds of things. And how do we change the kind of the accessibility into the industry as a whole and make it a more interesting and exciting place to be as opposed to the perhaps more traditional concept of what a building person or person within the building environment provision would be. Mm. And and in terms of that diversity of of business, clearly over the years, SMEs have, have just almost disappeared from view, haven't they? And we occasionally, there was a, a, a re-announcement a few weeks back, I think, about um self-build that that came out it reminded me of something that grant chaps issued you might remember it from 2010 something like that when he was in when he was housing minister 
before he got given to the trains. But uh, but the, the the question there is a question somewhere. Um, <laughs> the question is, <laughs> how are you looking to to reinvigorate the SME? community and, and and when you've answered Sarah I'd be interested from your perspective on how you think the, the digital platforms and things that firms like Modulus are doing could, could help in that agenda because again diversity is something that is it's a well it's a well trodden phrase but I'm interested in, in what that looks like in terms of tangibles. Yeah definitely so you know we've had the home building fund that's been active now for a number of years and huge part of that is SME development finance because that was the challenge you know certainly from, from was lending money to people that, that probably wouldn't be able to get money from that west absolutely so when you went through the financial crisis you know there was money that was being provided that really shrunk and there's some fascinating stats around the numbers of SMEs that survived through that process and we've done a lot of work with a variety of SMEs you know we don't want to be the lender of choice but what we try and be as an agency across the board, particularly within the investment function, is be that first lender that takes you from, you know, 15, 20, 25 home schemes to bigger schemes, which then give you the the market experience and the kind of the robust business case behind you that means you can go to NatWest or Lloyd's or whichever bank it is you want to talk to um, about what your future options are. So we try to be the a, kind of the step up again to enable these entities to really show that they've got their history because that's the big difference having worked with a number of banks along the way actually it's all about what have you done before how have you proven yourself mm. and a lot of them have to use either equity or quite expensive capital to be able to get there and if we can bridge that and make that accessibility of capital more achievable then that gives them the opportunity to drive things through yeah. but there you know there's still huge challenges aren't there in terms of we were talking earlier about accessibility into kind of costing and supply chains and everything else i think the other thing that we've recently try to change around and move a bit is the access to our development arm so we have you know we are the land the land agent effectively for government we have our own land holdings and we are also able to provide agency services and sort of planning and delivery services to other government entities so but what we'd realized is actually sometimes it was quite hard from an SME market perspective perhaps to tap into that market and so again making that route through to our land and how do you come in and bid for sites making that more accessible trying to tap more and give greater opportunity because a big challenge for SMEs is acquiring land because they don't have the big capital reserves behind them so they don't have the buying power again as much for the land as as much for the 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 you know nuts and bolts once they get it to take them forward it's a really important part mm. and, and, and Sarah from your perspective what are some of those areas that technology can unlock for not just for SMEs but I mean for anybody so I think that ability to have a technology that that links the whole of the industry together from from design all the way through to handing over the keys and then operating the building I think being able to tap into elements of that technology so whether you're an architect looking to design, as we were talking about earlier, using using a platform that you know is already costed and programmed, so you know what you're doing. But equally, as you move through into the SME building market, actually having a modular solution that you don't have to go and spend tens of millions to build your own factory to have a modular solution, actually being able to tap into a MMC product, you know, in our case, a kit of parts, but there are others, that you can then use to deliver your development. So that ability to tap into that market. And as we drive volume through our platform, actually because we're using a, a main supply chain, 
driving that volume into the supply chain almost becomes like collective buying. So we so you're know essentially cutting out middlemen. Partly cutting out middlemen, partly just consolidating the demand. So it makes it more efficient for the supply chain. So if there's a digitized demand, then the supply chain can react to that in an appropriate way. It's not someone picking up the phone saying, can I have X number of bricks tomorrow? It's a digitized planned demand, which means the supply chain and the manufacturer can be more efficient, which means you can drive the price down from their perspective. But also when you look at some of the really big house builders, they are able to negotiate better deals because they've got large demand. So by having a platform where you are consolidating demand, it allows us to actually drive down pricing in the supply chain and share that with partners. Mm. So for SMEs, being able to tap into some of that pricing in a different way, I think could be really transformational. But, but could be equally transformational to the, uh, to the housing association community? Absolutely. I mean, they are a key part of that development community and being able to come together in a way that doesn't require them all to sign up to one house type. You know, Because that's been the problem, hasn't it? The housing association fraternity are, are, are often incredibly, um, incredibly reluctant to, to, to come together because, as you say, they, they want to have the same house type as the one next door. I think there's always a challenge when you're bringing together different stakeholders, isn't there, about how you align their interests. And and you've got strong local vernacular, strong local need, and you need to have a product that can respond to that while at its core delivering a, a base level of demand. So and how does your product do that? Because you, you've said it's the same chassis. So if it's the same chassis, people are going to look at that and go, well, I'm just going to get the same as those guys over there. No, because it's a, it's a... Again, because we're using the supply chain and not our own factory, we can flex the box to be whatever box you want it to be. But also it is a, it's a box, so you can put whatever facade you want on it. So whether your local vernacular is brick or whether it is render or whether it is Cotswold stone slip, we've been having a discussion about how you build the modern version of Regency Bath by putting Cotswold stone slips on the front of a modular chassis. Actually, it's going back to development as it was in the 18th and 19th century. You know, it's a core building with a really interesting facade on the outside of it. Which is what our current housing ministry seems to want. Well, I think the current housing ministry reflects when, you know, my background in development and very much in placemaking. Tell us about that at Newbury. Yeah, so Newbury uh, Newbury Racecourse, um, one of the top 10 tracks in the country, but back in 2005 we were looking at how to redevelop the race course how to um, create something that was operating more than 30 days a year and came up with a scheme to develop 1500 homes wrapped around the race course creating a new community with the race course at its core and that went through the long journey it got really popular locally (laughs) so we went from a very large consult to public consultation um, when we first launched it to it went through planning first time with committee unanimous committee approval and that's all about that community engagement Mm. and creating a a true community so it was a bit of a it was probably one of the early stage pieces around community engagement and because of the race course is such a special asset it had a lot of stakeholders and we wanted to work with those stakeholders and we wanted to deliver something that enhanced the race course for the long term so we were driven to have those conversations and I think hopefully what we came up with is something that you know, 
really did deliver that. It's it's got a sense of place, it has a sense of community, and it works for both the race course and its new community. Mm. And and Sophie, from a from your perspective on the placemaking side, again, it's one of these phrases that everyone has a view on. What do you see as as your role within that? So when we're thinking about infrastructure, often that can be the difference between something working or not. When you're looking at, at funding this stuff, how are you thinking about how these places will develop over time? Yes, I think by the fact that we've got funding routes, and I should say actually, so we have the infrastructure grant side, which is very much available to local government partners. And they're kind of big up front. Generally, when there's not, a, so it's, it's outside the red line of the development. So it's, like I said, it's roads, it's utilities, it's it's big ticket things that will then unlock land for housing. But actually a really like fiber, important... fibre, it pay for fibre? Fibre, whatever it is. So it's basically the that particular grant model will pay for anything that is preventing the housing from being delivered. So that's either a viability gap or it might be actually we just need money to move that wastewater treatment works or put the fibre in or into Biggleswade. There's actually quite a big sort of grid limitation. So we've funded additional grid and electricity basically mm. so and I think the really important part to say just about that as well is that that just for to be clear in terms of how that grant works it's very much on the concept of recovery so actually once that grant is in it's made something happen as then development starts happening there is this kind of actually then we would be seeking to recover some of that so land value uplift and all that kind of piece very much in partnership with local government partners and local developers but also what we have within the agency is a more traditional infrastructure loan product. So that works just like a bank would, but whereas with the SME market, we're there because there's limited appetite and the, you know, the changes around risk perception were meant that there was a need, but equally for infrastructure loans, these typically would be eight to 10 year investments. Again, going in pump priming development. So whereas typically before you might've had, you know, 1500 homes, 2000 homes, and the school will come at a point when the developers delivered enough to be able to have the revenue account to be able to pay for that thing. What we can do is is go in and help invest into that in the future, so or earlier into the scheme. So urban and civic for us would be a really, you know, is, is a partner that we've talked about quite a lot. But if you remember a few years back now, those awful stories about, you know, homes without the pavements, without the school, the shop wasn't open, there was no bus stops. That feeling of place and community is so important and connectivity into wider infrastructure and social infrastructure is so key because we've talked a lot, haven't we, about how safe and what is the impact on the environment within the building, but actually how then you exist outside of that building and what your environment is around its accessibility, its connectivity to existing space is so important. Mm. So again, we've got routes through that are able to help tap into that and help that placemaking and sense of community. And I think the the really bit interesting for me on your new example is that it's all about the legacy, isn't it? So the race course will have been so invested in what that scheme looked like because you weren't going anywhere. You were still very much the race course and you sort of wanted to know that that was a place to be proud of for the future and how we get the market to think a bit more. So, of course, the affordable housing, the RPs are within this space, built to rent definitely. But how do we get that private sale market to really think about the longevity and what this is going to look like in 5, 10, 15, 100 years time, I think is really key for us as a market. Mm. And I, I think that actually, Andrew, is where some of the data piece comes in. Because actually, if you can track the data through to understanding what went in in terms of design, what it cost to deliver, because some of this stuff doesn't cost a fortune. Mm. Planting trees so the place actually feels green on day one 
there's a cost, but it's not that great. If you can then track that through to rental values or to sale values or to the amount of crime or non-crime in an area, and we can actually start to, to do that, there's a lot of gut feel. So when we did the race course, yes, we were invested emotionally, but there was a pretty strong gut feel we would drive value. Mm. And actually when we took it out to the market, it launched at 10 to 15% above the local local market. So there was a financial return. And I think anything we can do around data, collecting data to, to be able to provide those case studies. I mean, King's Cross would be another great example mm. where they've driven value through placemaking. So being able to articulate that for the private sector developer, you know, actually it does ultimately, it means more pounds in the pocket, mm. I think is the, yeah. the thing that will drive it most. And what, what do you need as a business to to drive forward? So we've been saying this for a while on this podcast that we're at a tipping point for MMC delivery and we had... Uh, we had Harry Swales last year on our on our MMC series, and we will have Mark Farmer back in a few weeks' time as well to celebrate five years of his report. But from your perspective, everyone's talking about digital. Everyone's talking about sustainability. So people clearly are with you on this on this on on the boat. But what do we need to do to drive the boat a bit faster? So I think the Homes England funding for HAs around MMC is a really good starting point. I think part of it then is is taking that and helping the planning authorities, the banks, you know, all of the people involved in that ecosystem, understanding what MMC means, you know, the speed at which it can be delivered, the quality at which it can be delivered, um, and, and getting the message out to give people the confidence actually to, to take that step and go with it. And this is where having the supply chain in your back pocket is actually probably a bit more important than people think, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think the supply chain is is pretty fundamental and having a capital light model, because actually if you've got to build a factory each time you want to increase the, the MMC capacity, that's a huge capital commitment. It, activating the existing supply chain is transformational for delivery of MMC really at scale. So we think we've solved the supply chain element, the other pieces around demand and, and helping all of the elements in that demand come on that journey with us and speeding it up. There's limited point in taking 50% out of the build time if it's still taking us 18 months to get through planning. And that 18 months is partly about being able to design digitally, you know, actually having the planning information codes available digitally so that we can upload it so that you can design to the code as opposed to trying to work it out by kind of crystal Mm. ball almost sometimes so making all this stuff a bit more open source yeah digitizing it and making it open source and then it's an education piece isn't it and i think it will i can see it already that it will start to snowball you know as schemes come through and come forward so it's about that funding to support those pilot schemes when everyone's a bit nervous because actually once you see schemes on the ground and people can touch and feel it and see what it's about then I think you'll start to get that real take up Mm. and we're seeing that already you know the conversations I'm having because we've got pilot projects coming through now the conversations are starting to network out. Quick final thought Sophie I'm not going to ask you to commit to giving loads of data away open source we'll, we'll, we'll put that to somebody else but from your perspective just as a final thought what are what are some of the, the things you're most excited about over the next couple of years and as we think about the future of housing i think 
the definitely the emerging piece around placemaking and I think that the data point so you know a big challenge I think for the market is the is that lack of knowledge or that that we talk a lot about data being knowledge and power and intelligence but actually just thinking about from an infrastructure perspective if we could get to a place where actually a developer coming into a site would be able to understand where the infrastructure surpluses are for my infrastructure world where the sort of the debits are and which are the bits that need to be offset and and created you know it's a bit of a personal bugbear but so much pressure we put on the infrastructure side because of land value so we you know Mm. we go in we pay in a competitive market fairly blind to what's needed not necessarily within the site itself but certainly what's needed outside that red line in terms of infrastructure provision and offsetting and then we end up having discussions at planning saying oh we're really sorry we can't afford that and that that drain has got to be because because i guess because that information isn't shared and there's a lack of trust there because people don't really a they don't understand it but they don't have the data to understand it. i think certainly i don't think it's necessarily a lack of trust it's just there is a competitiveness in the well, market certainly a lack of trust there? in the planning process and not 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 necessarily in homes england but if you think about the wider populace and the development community yeah so this concept that ever developers really bad and coming along to pull well over eyes yes. so certainly making and we've talked a little bit about that gut instinct and how Mm. you you know that this might be right but putting more data and sort of qualitative information around that and being able to really show this is what's needed to be done to a certain extent well it it will just mean that people are either bidding in in knowledge or coming into those discussions with knowledge which will definitely help that piece around you're right around that trust piece but also coming into sites really knowing the, the costs of that whole piece mm. and not just looking at an isolated point. And also from your perspective about where you can, as an agency, have the, have the greatest impact. Of course, absolutely. Because it's about doing the right things in the right places, isn't it? And really making sure that we, I talked a bit earlier, it makes me sound possibly a bit like a politician, but you know, how do we build communities and how do we get places that people exist healthily? You know, for me personally, actually that bigger impact of the outcomes for children, the outcomes for adults about what happens outside, inside, behind your front door, outside of your front door, mobility access, cycling. I think the last 18 months has told us anything. Actually, it's it's more than just what you exist in behind your front door, isn't it? It's about everything else that comes with it. Happy, healthy homes. Thank you very much, Sophie White. Thank you very much, Sarah Horden. So Sophie from Homes England, Sarah, co-founder at Modulus. I've been Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting. Thank you very much for listening to our Future of Housing podcast. There will be another episode next week on this marketplace. Please continue to check up on propertyweek.com for the latest news. Thank you for listening. Do go to Apple, to Spotify, search Propcast, to subscribe, leave us a review, tell us whether you hate it or love it. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye.